What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. My name is Jared, and I'm joined here today with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Austin. Hello. And we actually have a very special guest today. For those of you who have seen our Nicolas Cage video that was kind of the impetus for doing this entire month devoted to Nicolas Cage, we have with us today the writer of the book National Treasure that we based the episode off of. We have Lindsay Gibb with us. Lindsay, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, it's really, really awesome to have you. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying that was the impetus for this? Yeah, your book was the impetus for this whole month wow. long month long celebration of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> That's flattering. You know, our the the woman who wrote and directed that video, Amanda, is on a bus from D.C. to New York right now, and she wanted to be here so bad to talk to you, but oh. she's her bus was late, so she might call in a little bit later if she okay. wants to. Uh, if she uh, gets home in time. But anyway, so today we're talking about Con Air, the 1997 film directed by Simon West, starring Nicolas Cage, John Malkovich, and John Cusack. As always, let's go around and get some first impressions. What was it like watching this movie the first time, and what was it like watching it most recently? Let's start with Austin. Uh, So, you know, I saw this movie ages ago, and it was one of those films that was like young, adolescent dude action film for me but you know of course as Lindsay would probably talk about with sort of memification of nick cage it takes on a completely different role when you're projecting your presuppositions back into it so watching it now with nick cage especially after doing nick cage month and paying particular attention to his performance i actually like i really enjoyed the film at a at a different level like i really got into sociological theories and the philosophical theories about humanity and the cost of human life versus just profit. And I love the idea of like the destruction of Las Vegas, which is a sign of opulence in American culture. But it was at the expense of it was either that or saving human lives and what's more valuable and stuff like that. And so it was really kind of fun to look at it from that level, but then also to see a really subdued Nick Cage performance, right? Like, if we're just going to talk about Nick Cage month, there was no vampire's kiss kind of moments in this. There was no vampire's kiss. <laughs> Definitely not. So it was actually like a, it was actually a really like a really enjoyable just good action flick that kind of had some interesting subtle camera work, you know, the use of some interesting Dutch lenses, um some really interesting like crash zooms and uh, I, I kind of had like a Michael Bay feel to it and some crazy fucking soundtrack, like the electric guitar in the background. It didn't seem to like really work towards crescendo, but just was like constant at a fever pitch. So I found it like to be a really interesting and fun, enjoyable experience, even if it's not necessarily a quote unquote good film from a cinematic perspective. But I enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad to hear that it sparked something intellectually for you because I kind of was going into this with like, oh, I got a couple ideas, but overall... This is uh, Jerry Bruckheimer at his best, I felt like. Uh, Lindsay, what about you? Where does this, where do you place this movie in the Nick Cage canon? Uh, Not very high. Uh, I think of the action trilogy, it's my least favorite. Um, What are are the other films in the trilogy? So that's The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off. Okay. So I I think it's because he is the subdued character in this and he's kind of the everyman, which I do celebrate him for in my book. But I think when you look at The Rock, he's being an everyman in that as well. But he's in like a really weird situation for a guy who's just a scientist, 
usually. Um, so that, I think, brings about more interesting things than this does for him specifically. And I also think he's being more subdued in this to give other actors sort of an opportunity to be like the big character. Um, so yeah, it's not my favorite. Interesting. I quite enjoyed this movie last night. I hadn't seen it when I was since I was a kid, but I remember certain parts of it as clear as day. I think because it was one of those movies that was on TV all the time. Yeah, exactly. So there are, you know, half the movie that you see over and over again, but the certain points that I'll always remember is John Malkovich telling Steve Buscemi's character, I'm a fan of your work. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why, but that was just... And then, of course, uh, Buscemi and the girl uh, having that meal. Of course, uh, Dave Chappelle's character. I thought it was super fun. It moved so quickly. I had a great time. And it kind of made me a bit nostalgic for a time when our heroes were less smarmy and less cynical. I was like, yeah, man, Nick yeah. Cage, he's just a, a good guy. Just a simple, smart man who very confidently knows the division between good and evil. And there's no kind of cynical undercutting of any of his heroics or anything like that. And I really, really connected with that. Do Maybe you that's think, just me Do you think that part of it is because this is like a pre-9-11 film where people were like a military guy? And, and I know people have always, like, you know, post-Vietnam War, people still were critical of the military. But people thought that military people were like, a lot of times, were men of honor or people of honor, let's say, right? Where And that's kind of his thing is, yeah, he's got that bad side to him. You know, Monica Potter says that at the beginning. But he uh, he still is a man of honor and integrity, and he cares about his friend. And so he's going to do the right thing. Whereas like post 9-11, we're kind of like, fuck, man, we don't know what to think about wars that are illegitimate and people playing war games and like killing terrorists that look like video games and then laughing about it. And so there's kind of like more of a, a cultural skepticism to the military man. Do you think maybe this has something to do with it? That's really interesting. And we have Amanda with us. Amanda just got off the bus and she's now back in her home in New York. <laughs> Welcome, Amanda. Hi, thank you. It's so nice not to be on a bus right now. <laughs> I know. So you didn't miss much. We've just been talking about our initial impressions of Con Air. Um, Amanda, tell me what you think about this movie. This is a weird movie, man. It's like an amalgamation of every single actor who I love and would watch do anything. But it's it, it it's odd. <laughs> um, that's sort of my whole my whole reaction. I mean, Nicholas Cage's hair is so distracting that it's like kind of my main takeaway. It's just that it's wild. Yeah. Had you not um, seen it when you were a kid? No, I didn't. I don't know why. I mean, I'm kind of my my action film um, repertoire is is pretty weak, so it's not unusual for me to have missed like a major motion picture of the late '90s. That's so crazy. I it was on TV so often that I can't believe people missed it. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, this the reason why we're covering Con Air today is because it was our Patreon poll winner. So I asked all the patrons, which you can become one of by going to wisecrackplus.com. I asked them, for Nicolas Cage Month, what movie do you want us to cover? And since we have Lindsay with us, Lindsay, I'm going to go from bottom to top, the movies that got the least amount of votes to the ones that got the most amount of votes. And in between each one, I want you to tell me just what are your general thoughts about that movie in terms of how much you like that Nicolas Cage movie? Okay. Sound good? All right. So, with three votes coming in in last place, <laughs> Moonstruck. 
Oh my gosh. Oh, That's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah. No. Whoa. I watch it at least three times a year. <laughs> I okay. love that. Okay, well. I never had seen it until this project because my mom watched it while she was in labor with me and that grossed me out. <laughs> I just <laughs> saw it for this and it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, so, I saw it. So good. I saw it pretty recently for the first time as well and I liked it. All right, well, uh, just from email correspondence, I know Lindsay's going to be a bit disappointed with this one too. Coming mm. in in second to last with four votes is Wild at Heart. Yeah, that's my absolute <laughs> favorite. That and Vampire's Kiss are my absolute favorites. Well, Vampire's Kiss was the first one we did for Nicolas Cage Month. Right. So we kind of all got that one out of the way because we're all huge, huge fans. Um, coming in at the third to last place with also four votes, so technically tied with Wild at Heart, is Drive Angry. Okay. I mean, I I like Drive Angry a lot. Not as good as Wild at Heart and uh, Moonstruck, but it's it's there's a lot to be said. I think about Drive Angry. <laughs> okay, I haven't seen that one. Ooh. All right, coming in next at with twelve votes is Knowing. Yeah, Knowing is uh, I. A lot of people don't like Knowing, and I think that's fair. I think if you're someone who's looking really deeply at his career like I was you can find interesting things happening in knowing but otherwise it's a bit of a throwaway all right and uh number and the next one with 19 votes is leaving Las Vegas I mean that's just a natural expected one of his (laughs) yeah how many Uh, how often do you watch that one sorry how many or, yeah, how how many times have you watched that one? I find that one to probably be one that's hard to watch. Yeah, it is hard to watch. I've probably only watched it a handful of times, maybe five times. I've only seen it once, and I'm kind of scared to revisit it. I feel like yeah. that movie, like, if, if there's any, like, uh, I don't know, if there's a, if there's any tinge of desperation in your life, I feel like that movie can almost, like, appeal, like kind of resonate with you on, like, kind of deep, dark levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Similarly. Yeah. Similarly, coming in at 21 votes is Bad Lieutenant. I mean, I love Bad Lieutenant. <laughs> 21's yeah. pretty good. I don't know what the like most amount of votes is, though. But Well, uh, the one, well, I can good. tell you the winner. The winner is Con Air with 40 votes. 40. Okay. Yeah. So there were actually so there's just some squeakers here. So tied with Bad Lieutenant at 21 votes is Raising Arizona. So good. Yeah. So. so good. I barely talked about Raising Arizona in my book, but it is a really great. Yeah, we love it. And coming into 25 votes, which is actually the movie that we covered last week, is Adaptation. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot. Like Face Off, there's a lot to be said about Adaptation because you get two different cages in it. So mm-hmm. it's a great one. And the one that's only squeaked by or did not win but it was very close, was with 38 votes, Ghost Rider. Was it specifically one or two or just You know, I got to be honest. I didn't even know there was a two until like yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Uh, They're both very different films. Um, I think maybe there's more to talk about with two, but uh, Hmm. it's, it's an interesting performance, so. (laughs) <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, somebody emailed us and told us that he goes way wilder with the second one. Oh, yeah. And that, yeah. And that the second one is underappreciated. Well, the second one is directed by Neville Dean and Taylor, the guys that did, oh, gosh, what's that movie where J. 
Jason Statham has to keep moving. His heartbeat crank? has to keep crank. Yeah, the crank okay. directors did that. Uh, so that's the feel of Ghost Rider Two. The way he described it made me seem. This is off topic, but has anybody seen the Punisher War Zone, the second Punisher movie? <laughs> no. No. Oh, man, it's the first one is a is a serious superhero movie. The second one is a crazy dark comedy romp that almost nobody saw. But uh, it's pretty amazing. Anyway, maybe we'll do that for a later podcast. All right. uh, Before we go into the recap, one other uh, house cleaning item I want to do. Uh, I want to say thank you to some of the people that have been leaving us reviews on iTunes. I haven't done this in a while, and we got some really great reviews trickling in. So I want to give a shout out to a couple people who have been giving us some uh, kind reviews. Also, if you guys have some time, if you want to give us a review on iTunes, it really helps us algorithmically and all that jazz. So... This is from Thoughts of a Dying Believer. He says, this is a podcast which offers up a wide variety of interpretations on a wider variety of films. The hosts and guests aren't reviewing the films or trying to solve anything. Presumably, they're simply using the films as a fuel for fantastic discussions. Well, thanks, for thanks, Thoughts from a Dying Believer. This next one is from Schlepp Rock. He says, absolutely love the podcast. Jared, Ryan, and Austin all provide individual and insightful comments and perspectives. They do a great job of breaking down different themes, tropes, philosophies, and cinematic styles. Definitely worth watching if you're a movie fan. So thank you, Schlepp Rock. And this last one is from What We Into, and he simply says, love Austin. Jared, try to be more supportive. <laughs> all right I, I will try to be more supportive of you austin oh thank uh, you, all right man. <laughs> so let's go into a recap this one is actually quite short so u.s army ranger cameron poe is imprisoned for manslaughter after defending his pregnant wife in a brawl eight years later he makes parole and hitches a ride home to meet his daughter in a plane transporting some of the world's most dangerous cons to a high security prison including the notorious cyrus the virus Soon after takeoff, the cons, led by Cyrus, take over the plane. In order to get home, Poe will have to pretend to still be a con while secretly helping federal agent Marshall Larkin defeat Cyrus. Cyrus's escape plan is foiled when one of his fellow cons betrays him and Poe tips off the feds. So Cyrus has to fight his way through a SWAT team and take off again on Con Air. Cyrus discovers that Poe is working for the feds, and along with Larkin, Poe forces the plane to land on the Vegas Strip. Poe defeats Cyrus in a final brawl and reunites with his wife and meets his daughter. End of movie. All right. So, um, you know, before we start breaking down Con Air, I, I want to just ask Lindsay some more questions. And Amanda, please jump in as well, since uh, you did, you wrote and direct our Nicolas Cage video. But uh, Lindsay, my, my first thing I want to know is what got you into Nicolas Cage? Oh, wow. Uh... I guess I had just watched a bunch of his movies uh, and I found that, you know, people would say that he wasn't a good actor and I hadn't necessarily watched his movies because of him. I did, you know, like adaptation was just interesting to me. Um, The Weatherman was just a movie that looked good and I watched it. And so it sort of accumulated enough movies that I was like, I don't understand why people think he's a bad actor. He is always doing interesting things and he's good in the movies that I've seen him in so it sort of started off just that small and then I live in Toronto and the Toronto International Film Festival has a movie theater that runs year-round and they do special events and they did a Nicolas Cage retrospective and I was like oh my gosh I'm gonna go see all of the movies and so that's the first time I saw Vampire's Kiss 
And that kind of just put me over the edge. And I was like, this is the best. <laughs> I have to watch. <laughs> they only showed, you know, like a few weekends they showed movies of his. So I didn't get all of them since there's like 70 something. So I continued the film festival with my friends. And then we did that for about three years. And that's when my book came out after that. <laughs> so, yeah. That's so uh, awesome. I'm very jealous of you having seen Vampire's Kiss in a theater because yes. I can't imagine how fun that is. For the first time, too, and I didn't know that much about it. I was just like, okay, this is one of the ones I've never seen, so I'm going to see it. Yeah. So I mean, amazing. I, I saw it with just with Ryan, who is usually also a co-host on this podcast, and we were just dying laughing the whole time, having such a great time. And then I watched it again with my girlfriend, same thing. And it's always better when you experience that collective effervescence in the theater. And so I am so jealous that you had that experience. <laughs> hey, Lindsay, we had we had, yes. a, we had a fan ask us a question about, like, if we could distill into a single essence. Like, what is the oh, caginess of Nicolas Cage? Like, what is it that makes Nicolas Cage Nicolas Cage? Could you – do you have, like, a way of – just summing it up into a simple thing, like this is what makes a Nicolas Cage performance a Nicolas Cage performance as opposed to like the typical actor performance? I think people think it's the intensity. Like I think that's what people mean when they say cagey. Mm. But I think it's that with each movie you're getting a new experiment. And mm. Uh, yeah, I think that's what is compelling about him is that he's always trying something new. Mm. Even if it doesn't seem to make logical sense for what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Or, or if it doesn't work entirely. <laughs> right. <laughs> like the Alabama <Sure>. accent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my next question. Are there any Nicolas Cage performances that you downright hate or that just don't work for you on any level? Uh, Season of the Witch is my least favorite of his movies. And I think I couldn't even like dig out. Like sometimes he's in a movie that I don't think is good, but I still think he's doing good things. And I think season of the witch is just not good all around. Mm. He doesn't save it. Did did you see that one, Amanda? I didn't. No. (laughs) I was lucky not to, apparently. (laughs) Have you had any indication that Nicolas Cage is aware of the book? No, okay. no indication. I did attract the attention of his longtime stand-in, though. Hmm. He had a oh. stand-in for t- 10 years um, who worked with him for that long. So he was on Con Air, and I actually saw, when I rewatched Con Air now, I actually saw him in it because he plays, I don't know if you'll remember this moment because I didn't remember it until I saw it again, but uh, there's a moment when Cameron is talking to, um, oh shoot, what's the name of the cop? Oh, um, Lerner or whatever. No, no, that's yes. the air, no, that's Larkin. the airfield. I'm sorry. Oh, that's Larkin. the airbase, but it is Larson. Larkin. Larkin. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he when Cameron's talking to Larkin in the like airplane hangar or something and then he's overheard you see somebody like pop up that's sitting in the plane that's gonna take off uh just a little head pops up and then goes back down and you know that they've been overheard that was his stand-in and he lives in toronto and anyways he found me and so i met up with him (laughs) (laughs) um 
So he knows about the book, but I don't know if Nicolas Cage does. Well, he should because it's pretty awesome. Amanda, do you have any questions? Yes. So not to like summarize the thesis of your book to our audience, but just for context, for me, the most fascinating part of many fascinating parts of your book was your kind of proposal that the reason that we see him as over the top and ridiculous is because we have such a limited view of what acting for the movie should be. And I was just wondering kind of how you want to, how you went about developing that theory. If it like clicked at any one point when you were watching him, I'm just super curious about your process because it was such a fascinating point to me. I wonder if I can even remember. Um, I think it could have been, uh, just the criticisms that were that that people had against him uh, just seemed to be in that vein, like that they had a limited view of what it meant to be good in something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it might have been that. It yeah, it might have been the reviews that I was reading saying that you know he was going over the top or whatever and and it also was his own defenses that I was able to find when I was doing my research Mm -hmm. so his explanations for why he did certain things like in Peggy Sue got married or something so um yeah and I think it's also the the types of things that get awards um it's very clear that there's a a very certain type of movie (laughs) that someone can be awarded for um and it's i mean it's even clear if you look at nicholas cage and leaving las vegas he did the the right thing to get an award and he may never get another <laughs> but i think he's doing more interesting things oh definitely totally and do you think there are any actors like remotely like him in terms of just the amount of um experimentation that's going on So my editors asked me this when I was writing the book to see if I would, like, make a comparison. I didn't end up finding anyone, though I did question if maybe James Franco was someone like that. I don't know about still. Like, I think maybe when I was writing this, it seemed like it. He'd done a lot of weird things, like be in the general in general hospital and other things like that so and also it helped that the one movie that Nicolas Cage directed uh has James Franco as the lead so Hmm. I felt like that was kind of and he was in the role that Nicolas Cage wanted to play in it but by the time he directed it he felt like he was too old for the role so he gave it to James Franco so it was like maybe Nicolas Cage sees James Franco as himself Hmm. yeah that's so interesting. What movie is that? It's called Sunny. Sunny. Yeah, Sunny. Oh, okay, cool. It's funny you mentioned Franco because Austin and I have been brainstorming about doing a similar video about James Franco. Oh. And, 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 so and, do you uh, agree? <laughs> well, we were actually not thinking of focusing on his acting necessarily because he's also in all of those art movies that I guess he either writes, directs, he's also written a book, and he's all this poetry. So we kind of are a little bit lost as to what do we focus on. Right. Well, he's definitely taken it further than Nicolas Cage. Like, Nicolas Cage is very much focused on acting and the the many things he can do with acting, whereas James Franco has taken it outside of that and just, like, all the art forms. Do you think there's an authenticity with Nick Cage? Like the thing with Franco that that I feel is I feel like he's genuine. 
whether or not okay. it's a genuine superficiality because there's a difficulty <laughs> of grounding himself. I think he thinks he's being authentic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's a sincerity. Yeah. Do you think it's the same with Nick Cage? I think so. I think he's very passionate about acting and like yeah. movement and all of that that goes with it. And I think that he's always learning and investigating and trying new things. And I, yeah, I don't think that anything he's doing is like a cynical grab at like the memes around him or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like that's one but of the things think- that never sits well with me when they're like, oh, he's got these debts because there's uh, this lavish spending and so he just has to take these roles. And it might be the case that he's a little bit less discriminatory about what roles he's going <laughs> to take. But I still think that he believes that what he's doing is like an authentic expression of a performance artist. Absolutely. And and I mean, he does turn down roles. It's not like he does every single thing <laughs> that he's ever been offered because he's he was offered Lord of the Rings and he didn't take that. So like, uh, you know, he does things for specific reasons. And I think, yeah, mm. maybe he does as many movies as he does because of debts and what have you. But I think he also just really likes to work. Mm. So. Do you think... Do you think that memification element we're talking about, do you think that's informed his acting? Do you think that he's reacting to it at all? Do you think he just tries to tune that out and just be as authentic as possible? I think for a long time he probably didn't know about it. I think he definitely does now. Yeah. Um, and I did wonder that, like in Mandy, the bathroom scene. Yeah. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I do wonder. Like, I I feel like it's authentic to the movie and i think it makes sense and everything but i do start to think like is this what you know i saw it in a theater and everybody was losing it at that part and i was Mm -hmm. like okay but is this what everybody's here for like is everybody like this is the moment the Nicolas cage moment yeah but i don't know he's said in interviews that he doesn't let it affect him so i'm gonna believe him Hmm. because if the director (laughs) says all right i want you to do the nick cage thing it's not like he doesn't know what he's talking about yeah yeah exactly but yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, I also like the very first time I saw that scene, I was a little cynical about it. And then the next two times that I watched it, I was like, no, 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 this like makes so much sense to this movie. So I can't fault him for that scene. One more question occurs to me. Um, in in your book, you talk about how he is kind of like half character actor, half leading man. And I'm curious if you have any like theories. Uh, sorry, if, if that's if that's correct, or if I'm, yeah, I'm oversimplifying, yeah, obviously. But do you think that there's a reason that he became Nicolas Cage versus being, you know, one of many, like, you compare him a little bit to, like, Steve Buscemi's, or, mm-hmm. like, what do you think made him what he is, given the fact that he should be a character actor? <laughs> that's a really good question. Yeah, what made him a leading man? <laughs> He's a Coppola. No, I'm sorry. That's the cynical. Yeah. <laughs> that's the cynical response. No. That is the cynical reason. <laughs> um, and I do. I mean, I honestly think that the whole changing his name to Cage and everything was a way to get away from that. But there's no way to totally escape it. Huh? I don't know. There's something compelling about his face, and I don't know if that mm. is what led him to get. More leading roles. I mean, obviously, directors. He's worked with so many, like, auteur-type directors that I think mm-hmm. people people other than us see that he is a great actor. So maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's as simple as that. I don't know. 
Hmm. My, cool. I only have one more question before we get into Con Air, unless, sure. Amanda, do you have other questions? Um, they might come to mind, uh, but well, feel, for feel free at any time to uh, to ask or whatever. But are you aware of the Sion Sono movie that's coming out? And are mm -hmm. you familiar with his work? And how excited are you? Pretty excited. Hell yeah! Have you yeah. seen <laughs> Have you seen Love and Peace? I haven't. Ooh, well. If uh, that's that, I don't know if it's his most recent movie, but Ryan, who's on this podcast a lot, loves Sion Sono. It's his favorite director, and Love and Peace is batshit crazy and awesome. So, if you want to prime yourself for what Nick Cage is getting himself into, I highly recommend checking that out. Cool, I will. There's there's kind of a lot of upcoming stuff for him that is exciting. And a little while ago, I predicted that the next stuff he would be doing was horror like the next trilogy or something that he would have would be horror and it almost seems like that might be coming true so i'm excited about that yeah me too with the hp uh, lovecraft thing mm -hmm. yeah, yeah that's the one that people are also losing their minds about so hell yeah it's a good time to be a cage fan all right it so <laughs> talking about con air um so one thing i found interesting about this movie and uh after this point i'm gonna throw it to you austin because it seems like you had some other interesting points to bring up but um there's something interesting going on with intelligence in this movie. So we see both intelligent good guys and intelligent bad guys. So Marshall Larkin is constantly appealing to reason, and you contrast him with the corrupt Agent Malloy, who's always dismissing evidence in favor of what his gut tells him. And it's and then the two most horrific I, uh, antagonists in the film are Cyrus and Garland Green, who is Steve Buscemi, and they're both very well-read and pedantic. Hmm. Whereas Poe, if I was to, when I saw Nicolas Cage start to speak in an Alabama accent, and I remembered <laughs> that what year was this? Oh, it's 1997. Of course, the first thing that popped into my mind is he's doing a Forrest Gump, <laughs> or oh. or that. He's with isn't Baby O in Forrest? Gump? Yeah, it's it's Bubba. <laughs> it's the same guy. Yeah, yeah it's Bubba. <laughs> And I, yeah, I couldn't help but think that like there's a similar thing going on between those two characters that there's virtue in his simple conviction on the distinction between right and wrong, mm. and like how he's the foil to this kind of over intellectualizing that confounds this obvious divide. Like there's the part where Garland is saying, "Now we're talking semantics. What if I told you that insane was working fifty hours a week in some office for fifty years, at the end of which they tell you to piss off, ending up in some retirement village, hoping to die before suffering the indignity of trying to make it to the toilet on time? Wouldn't you consider that to be insane?" And then he, and then there's another scene where he, uh, he uh, psychoanalyzes one of the other inmates. And uh, I found that kind of interesting. And that coupled with Forrest Gump, I was like, what was going on in this time to where there was like, I think kind of more to Austin's point, like pre 9-11, like there was this uh, this valorization of the kind of simple, rugged American man who knew the distinction between right and wrong and was a man of action. Did anyone else think anything along those lines or? That spark anyone? I mean, yeah, for me, I, I totally see that. I think it, for me, it really clicked when uh, John Cusack and then the DA are having a conversation. And Cusack says something that seems to provide a level of like empathy that the fact that these are humans, they're not just monsters. And the DA says, wait, are you trying to provide some sort of sociological analysis for how the system turns them into such and such or whatever? And Cusack, who just previously had described himself as being garrulous, and then he just, l like, rifles off a litany, like, loquacious, verbose, whatever, you know? 
and uh, it, it's almost as though that that there is a sort of theory of the human that is undergirding this whole thing, and it's this idea of of what does it mean to be human, and what are the characteristics of monstrosity, and how is it that somebody becomes corrupted, and in what ways does the system further corrupt them? Is how is a system humane? They talk about Dostoevsky and the idea that. Uh, you know, the basically the way that you can look at the humanity of a society is by looking at how it treats its prisoners or its inmates or whatever. And there's some just really f- interesting themes going on at that level that I think kind of cut underneath everything up until, like I said, the, the, the climax of the film where they destroy Las Vegas, the symbol of money and wealth and all of this other stuff in order to just simply save some human lives. And they're concerned about whether the loss of life is going to take place on the Sunset Strip. Like, should they should they shoot down the plane? Uh, you know, this is kind of like the trolley problem in philosophy. Do you shoot down the plane and uh, you just kill some inmates? And then you also you see this in the Dark Knight, right? You got the prisoners on one side and you got the quote-unquote innocents on the other side. Like, what decision do you make? What is the value of a human life, et cetera? And I think that there's a lot of that stuff that's going on in this movie. Yeah. You know what else I found kind of interesting is Buscemi's character. I don't really know how we're supposed to, like, if we, if we take what Austin's talking about and if the movie is at least vaguely on some level maybe trying to pose questions as to the humanity of prisoners and, you know, if they can be redeemed or whatever, what are we meant to take from, like, the last shot of the movie, which is supposed to be funny, which is Steve Buscemi's character who has <laughs> admittedly who's admittedly killed, what, 30-something people? At one point, he even nonchalantly says that he wore a little girl's head like a hat. And then he also talks about how uh, Gacy and Dahmer and uh, they're all true artists. At the end, he's just like in Vegas, shooting some craps, sipping on a drink with a nice little umbrella, and we're all just meant to be like, ha-ha, the nice, little, the nice guy who didn't end up killing that little girl is enjoying himself. What are we supposed to take from that? Yeah, it's like he's redeemed or something because he didn't kill that girl. <laughs> right, it's and so weird. And he like, sat there with Nicolas Cage and was like, yeah, these guys are fools. Like He doesn't seem to like the other inmates, so are we supposed yeah. to think he's smarter than them or something? I don't know. It almost goes down a little bit easier now that Steve Buscemi really is, he's kind of like an America's good guy. When was the last time we saw him using his very distinct facial features to portray evil or some sort of derangement like it is in this movie? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not not in a long time as far as I can tell. He's always just kind of been like the goofy Coen Brothers yeah. guy, you know, fun character. There is there is one other thing that might tie into this, and I don't know how far to push it, so I'm just going to throw it out there and then let you guys talk. Mm-hmm. But uh, the guard, the the female, um, what was her name? The female officer who's on the plane. Um, yeah, I don't remember her name. She makes a comment at one point. I think she makes the comment uh, about Nick Cage's daughter and says that that is your motivation for rehabilitation when they're on the bus before they get to the plane, right? And I thought there was something mm-hmm. really nice about the idea of rehabilitation in relation to justice, right? Like, like what is the prison system supposed to do? I mean, I am completely 100% opposed to the criminal prison system that is retributive and punitive that characterizes particularly the American system in, in, in like a very harsh sense, right? And I'd be much more in favor of some sort of notion of like restorative justice or reparative justice or rehabilitative justice. You know, you see this in the Scandinavian countries. I think Norway in particular have these camps that – are really about like rehabilitating and 
they're not just simply punishing somebody and locking them into the cages for retributive purposes. So I wonder if there's something in this that Buscemi is somehow he's seeking rehabilitation. So the reason that he doesn't kill the little girl is not that like, oh, we're applauding someone for doing something that's just like basic fucking humanity and not murdering somebody. But rather maybe it's like, well, maybe he has a new lease on life. And that maybe that that's like the idea is that rehabilitation is possible for anybody. <laughs> his punish, but like his deeds are so horrible and he doesn't <laughs> seem to be at all uh, like at all showing any remorse on the plane. If anything, he's just like, man, the great crimes are the ones of passion, man. I mean, I, if anything, it's weird. <laughs> I don't like, no. Yeah. If you just if you just wrote it down like that last scene, him at the craps table sipping on a drink. And it was in the script. I would think to myself, "Oh man, this is like some sort of cliffhanger ending, kind of like the end of Silence of the Lambs. Like he's still out there, and shit's gonna go wrong." Right. But it's not that. The way that it, the like tonally, it's just like, "Oh, and now the goofy fun guy is having a goofy fun time in Vegas." <laughs> <laughs> the thing that like, and I feel like they always do this with the main character in movies like this. Um, is I feel like it actually would have been more interesting if um, Nicolas Cage's character had committed a less, like, had committed a more egregious or less, like, immediately understandable crime, you know, because him being there for manslaughter is, like, not as interesting as, you know, him being there for, like, I feel like if they really wanted to comment on, like, rehabilitation it would have been more interesting for him to actually have had something to be rehabilitated for. Mm. I think that's a great point because yeah, he's immediately a good guy, immediately infallible. And the fact that he has to serve this time is an injustice. Mm. Totally. Yeah. That's at true least, at the outset, huh? Yeah. Do you think that there's like a, a sense of, I'm kind of going back to the intelligence thing that this divide between Cyrus and but the, the divide between Cyrus and Poe and also uh, the aforementioned thing about Forrest Gump, do you think that I almost feel like the message becomes like, beware of the fancy talkers because they could be using their verbal gymnastics to justify something that's clearly wrong. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And it's so funny because this came out, you know, three years before Bush beat Gore. And it's like it's like everything that you're saying is exactly what people said about why they liked Bush and didn't like Gore. So it feels like a Mm. very perfect parable for like the time that it was released. I think that's super interesting. But Mm. meanwhile, John, John Cusack's character is clearly the better cop and he's the fancy talker in that dynamic. Yeah, so there is some balance there. I totally agree. Right. Yeah, you know, I really you wish... do see a distinction between like the law and the system and then the person and the human. And I think they set that up and and I think it actually takes place at a bunch of different levels, but just like what Amanda was saying a minute ago, the idea that he was unjustly accused of a crime at the outset because the law is kind of rigid, right? So the rehabilitation that he's supposed to go through, the punishment that he served is a debt to society because of a restrictive code that doesn't allow for nuance and humanity, even though they say, well, obviously under normal circumstances, had you killed this person, it'd be different, but because you're a trained weapon, that's like the implication, right? Because you, you have skills, you can't be punished like a normal person. Therefore, you owe a debt to society. So the rehabilitation is... It's also about his personal problems, right? Like Monica Potter says this at the outset where they crammed so much information into a 
two-minute scene. Too much information, Jerry Bruckheimer. Too much. Um, but where it's like, oh, yeah, I saw that guy again. Like there's something that there's a character flaw in him that he needs to overcome. So that's part of it too. But the problem is that the prison system doesn't allow for human beings to mature. Or does it? And is there a way that you can? Like does he grow? Does he become a new person? And then he just kind of gets drawn back into being like the bad person because of the extreme circumstances of being on Con Air. I mean I, I don't know. I think those themes are all being explored. It's interesting. I forgot about that line when he when he says, you know, when the judge says you're a weapon. That's really interesting just given how much back and forth there was about how many weapons were at literal weapons were going to be allowed on the plane. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, psych, there was one more weapon. It was oh, cage. Yeah. One that they didn't take into account. <laughs> you know, another thing, so more to Austin's point about this division bet- or, or about humanizing prisoners, there was something that was going on that I thought was going to be explored a little bit more. And that's what the character of Malloy so when Malloy, who's the DEA agent, when he rolls up at the beginning of the film in his fancy convertible, I thought that, like, it, well, let me hear what you guys take. Did you take that, like, okay, he's obviously corrupt because, like, why does he have so much money? Did you guys get that at all? I just thought or he was not arrogant really. and kind of a prick. Yeah. Yeah. But, he's the, just the jerk who thinks the system works really well. Yeah. Because he's not corrupt. It's not like he's taking money on the side that we know of, right? Well, it's, it's kind just that he's, of, well, he's a he's an asshole. I agree. There's no real indication that he's corrupt, but there's another line that Dave Chappelle's character says where I think when the guy who's undercover who reveals himself to be a DEA agent, I think he even says like I'm DEA motherfucker and then Chappelle says something along the lines of, "Oh, so you're just as crooked as the rest of us" or something like that. Or you're just as much of a criminal as the rest of us. There is something going on through like mm. these these uh, throwaway lines that suggest that the DEA is really crooked. And I kind of thought that it would be a cool thing thing for like, you know, them to have this subplot that says that, you know, the line between a prisoner and, a, and some of these DEA agents is just that the DEA agents haven't been caught. Hmm. But totally. it never really happens. I mean, I kind of took it at a more, but this is just my nature. So maybe I'm fucking projecting, uh, but I kind of took it more at like a political level, right? Like, Oh, you're a DEA agent. Yeah. We know what you motherfuckers do, how you support, uh, you know, you give money to, I don't know, to, to fuel drug wars so that you can then perpetuate the criminal justice system or something like that. You know, like that's my, in my mind or like, like the CIA is backing coups. Like you're currently seeing in Venezuela, like, um, you know, the law is not so clean and pure. Justice is not blind motherfucker. You're just as dirty. You know, that's kind of what I was thinking. But, you know, that's just me. I mean, you know, people who listen, they know me. I'm problematic. You know? Yeah. So the DEA agents should have said. (laughs) (laughs) So we have we have this whole soundboard full of these that I just remembered that I have. So am I getting through to you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, The best. Yeah, the best. So I just also want to talk about uh, how cool this script is. I mean, I, I think the script is great. It never takes a break. I mean, in terms of just action movies, being just bang, bang, get what you're coming for. You know, the cold open is a concise five minutes. We're introducing the other inmates through montage and a voiceover that's just a sentence or two, and then they move on. It kind of reminds me of a movie that did this really poorly, Suicide Squad, and I feel mm. like this does it much better. He's in jail within six minutes, and the plane is taken over within 20, 
And uh, there are also just a lot of different points of tension that are all kind of working in concert together. And I can definitely say that uh, I did not get bored. And I can't really say that for a lot of action movies from this time. But there's, will the guy with diabetes survive? Will Poe be found out? Will Johnny 23 be prevented from raping the female guard? Will the other cons stay loyal to Cyrus, unlike that drug runner who betrays him? And will Malloy botch the whole operation? I mean, it's really... I think it's very skillfully and cleverly done to where, like, every single one of these subplots are being strained at one point or another. Although all Nick Cage had to do, or all Poe had to do, was tell uh, Malkovich's character, the virus, that, like, hey, this guy just needs a needle. Because virus, virus, he, he was... You know, he's a prisoner and he has his motive for wanting to get them into international waters or whatever so that they can't be extradited. But he also was a rational and reasonable dude in a lot of ways. He made very wise decisions a lot of times. So, like, it wouldn't have been so hard if they got to Lerner and he's like, listen. And Poe just goes, listen, I just need to get a needle for this guy because he's going to die. We have the insulin. There's a first aid kit here. I'm just going to run and go get that real quick. Like, why was it such a big deal that he had to sneak around to get a needle to give the insulin to the guy when everybody knew that he was sick on the plane anyway and all he needed was a needle and they would have been cool yeah. with getting him a needle? Like, I didn't get that part. That would have made the plot more interesting in terms of showing, like, the suppose the humanity of these terrible dudes. I True. totally agree. Hey, can I, can I ask can I ask a couple questions to Lindsay and Amanda about like the memification of Nick Cage? Yeah. Um. So, so I I'm I'm I like I'm not like into the meme world so much. Like I get it. Obviously, I'm on social media and things like that. But the best little essay that I've ever read on this sort of thing was something I used to teach actually to like first year philosophy students. Uh, it's by Jorge Luis Borges, and it's called Borges and I, and it's about the distinction between the I that is writing this essay and then Borges, who is like this character, this person, this static identity that is outside of him. And he's kind of like discussing the distinction between the two. Like, what do you think it is? How do we, how are we supposed to understand when we talk about the memification of Nick Cage? It's not just something that exists in digital space. Like, how do we understand it? How does it affect mm-hmm. his performance? What do we mean when we say the memification of somebody, the, the sort of like, turning them into an object. Like, how, how are we supposed to think through these things? Do you have any interesting thoughts on that? <laughs> I will definitely defer to Lindsay <laughs> as the resident cage expert. <laughs> uh, so how do we think of him as a meme, like, outside of the actual memes that are created? Yeah, or, or maybe both. Like, what, what does it mean to just memify somebody? And then how does that impact us and, or impact him? And our experience of him. Uh, I mean, I think they take the most extreme parts of him. So like the face mm-hmm. from Vampire's Kiss or the not the bees moment from Wicker Man. And then that becomes at least the expectation of what people think is pretty much all he does when, you know, it's somebody looking at that who maybe has never seen one of his films. So then I think it just creates an expectation of like he's always going to be at this level mm. of intensity. Mm. Um, when you yeah. guys when you guys were watching the film, did especially at the beginning when Nick Cage is being a serious good guy, 
do you ever like, oh my God, this is kind of, do you ever get this feeling, oh, this is kind of breaking for me, I can't take it seriously, but it's not because he's not selling the moment, it's because I know that that's Nick Cage, and when he makes that serious face, I can't help but think that there's something else behind it, like the like the meme is coming through. <laughs> like, has that ever happened? Like, even in, like, adaptation, it doesn't really happen to me on adaptation, but at the beginning of this movie, that definitely happened for me, where... I was like, uh-oh, I- I'm starting to see past the facade, but I don't know if it's just because of my exposure to memes or because mm-hmm. he's actually not convincing me. It's really hard to tell. Yeah, I mean, even I said that this is my least favorite of the action movies because he doesn't get to do as many like interesting things. And by that, what do I mean? Like in, in Face Off, he's obviously doing a lot of the more extreme stuff. So that movie is more interesting to me. Hmm. But... But I think that he does a lot of subdued things in, like, Joe or, like, even in Mandy, some of the moments where he's, like, just quietly enjoying his wife. I think those are great moments Mm. that prove that he's a good actor, but people, that's not what people come looking for because of the meme, the memification of Cage. Mm. Right. Yeah, that's it. I mean, Mm. it it just seems that. And and I think human thought essentially does this. So I'm not sure it's something we can entirely get away from. But I think there are ways of doing it that that aren't as like repressive. But it's almost like when you turn somebody into a meme, you take away all nuance of what this person could be. You take away all sort of intricacy and complexity and you reduce them down to a single soundbite or a picture or a meme. And then the weird thing is, is if you memify a person, and if that tendency actually kind of represents culture at large, if people are just like the Instagram photo that they put up online, right? Like that's what the person is, but they don't, <laughs> right. they're not anything else that's more complex than that. Then what happens is it creates a, a weird field of expectations for how it is that we understand society and life. And we then project those expectations onto the world. And I think it creates a weird tension when we then confront the complexity of life, which is more than the meme, you know? Right. Exactly. Totally. One thing is that in some ways, Cage's meme self is at least more interesting than most um, in that, you know, when you have like a sad Keanu, like the, the distinguishing factor of a Nick Cage meme is probably intensity um, or just conviction with which he puts it with what that he puts into every single role but like the most extreme moment of conviction. So he can be, you know, sad or angry or surprised. And it still is like an effective Nicolas Cage meme. Hmm. So in some ways he has more range at least. But yeah, yeah, I totally agree about it being like, even as I was watching this movie, I was, you know, there were moments where I was like, oh, that's a good meme. And it's like (laughs) just (laughs) cherry picking the moments when he's most that character, that, that memed character which is totally yeah repressive yeah and like i don't want to just sound like i'm just constantly being like a technophobe i know that people are like guys you constantly are critical of like social media but what about the positive stuff so so that i'm not just you know some sort of cynical asshole here i will say that i do think that that like the memification let's say of a person can also have like a dynamism just like amanda was saying like and maybe Maybe the memification of Nick Cage lends itself to more of a dynamism because he's such an expressive actor. Yeah, I feel like there's a t-shirt of Nicolas Cage faces that 
are all the different like moods that his face can express and then and then the last one is just not the beads but like all the rest of it is like angry surprised whatever and like there are all these different expressions and like his face is incredibly dynamic so Hmm. yeah and yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think the Sion Sono movie would be happening if there wasn't the Nicolas Cage meme. I mean, I don't I don't know what the movie's going to be necessarily. But so Amanda also wrote another video for us that hasn't come out yet. But I mean, we would also venture a guess to say that John Wick wouldn't exist without the sad Keanu meme. Um, so anyway, totally. guys, let's go into the mailbag. If you guys... First, we're going to hear our voicemails. If you want to call us with your insights, questions, jokes, whatever you want, 213-534-8807. Let's start with James. He's got some. So, Lindsay, the last movie we covered uh, was we actually did two. We did Adaptation and then one on the Fire Festival documentary. Have you seen that? Uh, which one is that? Is that the well, uh, Hulu the, one or the Netflix one? We did the Netflix one. Okay, that's the only one I've seen because okay, Hulu cool. doesn't so feel exist f- in Canada. <laughs> oh, wow. Feel free to chime in on any of these. So this one is from James. Go, James. Hi, uh, my name's James. I'm a caller from Milwaukee. Big fan of the podcast, big fan of the show. Uh, I think you guys really touched on something really great topics. Uh, I was just listening to the uh, Fire Festival episode on uh, Show Me the Meaning, and you guys were touching on the uh, burnout culture that really has engulfed millennials, and I'm really happy that you brought that up. But yeah, I-, I was you know, curious about your thoughts on at least my point of view in this, in that I don't think necessarily that the burning out, so to speak, is a bad thing. I, you know, for, in my personal experience, I used to be really heavy. I was 365 pounds. Over the course of two years, I lost 120 pounds. And I got to that point because I, you know, as a result almost of this burnout culture, this, this culture of constantly, you know, pushing yourself. And I, and I do believe in that. I believe that a strenuous life is, there's a lot of virtue behind it. And, and, and I think that, you know, constantly pushing your limits, constantly you know, trying to find out, you know, how far can you go, uh, really does have a lot of benefit, not just, you know, to success in life from maybe like a monetary or a professional point of view, but uh, success in your character, in your individual identity. And I feel that by pushing yourself and really, you know, grinding, you know, quote unquote, as hard as you can, really can help you develop your culture. So I, I I'm sorry, your character. So, I guess what I, you know, I, I'm asking here is, you know, at what point does that become a bad thing? Is it just putting up the front of, you know, grinding, working hard, you know, trying to show everybody that I am, you know, I'm the best, I'm working harder than everybody, therefore I'm better than you? Or is it, is, or is there virtue in doing that, you know, silently? Is there virtue in, in working hard and constantly pushing yourself and, and maybe burning out and figuring out where's that point of my burnout and how do I overcome that point of, bur- of burning out? to push myself to the next level. Is that in and of itself a bad thing, or is it just when you uh, put up the front? Uh, thanks again, guys. You know, I really appreciate the show. Love everything that you're doing. Uh, take it easy. Hmm. All right. Thank you, James. Uh, I'll just go ahead and start off by saying that, uh, yeah, first of all, I don't think anyone here is um, questioning the value of hard work. We're all very hard workers, uh, and... I agree that the more you push yourself, the more that you can achieve. I would say that I think what we're mostly critical of is the whole fronting thing, is the idea of, or like just, especially for the grad school thing that Claire was talking about, just like fetishizing misery, like that's not good. Like like you want to work hard and you want to create the best 
out of yourself. And I don't necessarily think that you have to punish yourself. I don't think it has to be completely um, painful all the time. And yeah, I think the biggest criticism for me is just making is that if you want to work hard, good, go work hard, but don't make it like a fashion statement. Don't wear hard work and don't actually do it. That's just douchey. And you're just kind of, um, I don't know. I don't know. Someone else take it from here. I'm not <laughs> expressing myself. Well. No, totally. Like, uh, the, like I feel like bragging about not sleeping, like kind of encapsulates it for me because you're both like doing something unhealthy for your body. And then you're like, lauding it as something to be proud of um, and almost like suggesting that people who are sleeping are doing something wrong. So yeah, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, when, when we feel like we should be congratulated for like <laughs> abusing our bodies in the name of hard work, I feel is like a line for sure. Right. And, and to your example, James, you pushed yourself and you had a very positive outcome. So no one's going to criticize you for that. But if really it is just like, I'm pushing myself to, you know, not eat or not sleep or physically harm myself just to be cool or to do what I feel like I'm being culturally brainwashed to. Then that's not good. You know, like there's no reason for that. Hmm. Yeah. And I think in, in philosophical terms, they use the phrase like meta ethics and meta just means like beyond. Right. Um, so it's like a, a sort of frame conditions how it is that we think about ethics. So let's say, so why is hustling in one context, you know, trying to lose weight because you want to be healthy so that you can become a better father or better partner or better worker uh, for your community or whatever, versus just hustling like we talked about, what was it, 723, the Aziz Ansari company that's like, you're just doing business to do business to do business to do business. That's the distinction. It's what is the meta-ethical framework there's conditioning why we are hustling. If we are hustling simply so that we can produce more for the marketplace that's trying to exploit us and dehumanize us and not giving us a return on the social investment that we are uh, proportionally imbuing into the system as creators and as thinkers and as laborers and as community members, well, then that I would say is a problematic form of hustle. But if it's a hustle that's like, no, we're going to build strong communities so that we can take care of the elderly who are often pushed to the sides or take care of the disabled or the non-neurotypical who are kind of viewed as like token elements of society or people who aren't given value or that we're going to like overcome gender wage gap or whatever the very issues of inequality or injustices are that face us, what is it that we're hustling for? And I think that that even means to like personal well-being and your own psychological health and your physical health so that you can be a better partner, like I said, or a better daughter or a better son or a better husband or whatever it is that you're trying to do to improve so that you can become a better community member. I think that it's the division between what is it that's framing our hustle or what's framing our quote-unquote burnout. Like if you work your fucking ass off and you produce a cure for cancer – and then you give that and you open it up pop, uh, publicly and then you burn yourself out but you're not trying to make a profit at the end, I'd say that's fucking laudable, right? But it's again, what is it that's motivating us ultimately? The meta ethics, the, the bigger than just the I'm doing this because. It's okay, well, what's even beyond that because? See, that was me being supportive. Thank you, Jerry. When I, when I, had, when I had the applause clap. No, totally, totally. Uh, all right, moving on to the next one. So this is from Sean about adaptation. Go, Sean. Uh, hey, what's up, guys? This is uh, Sean from Miami, Florida. Um, I just finished listening to the uh, Adaption podcast, and, uh, you know, especially with the Vampire's Kiss one, um, 
you guys really delved into the different ways Nick Cage approached a character. Um, and I was very interested, um, well, uh, surprised rather that you guys didn't bring up Kickass and his character Big Daddy in that because I think that character more so than any other is so divorced from reality and it's such a great commentary on what it would take to be a superhero vigilante in the real world. Um, more so than any of his other characters, but, you know, just wanted to say that and what you guys thought. I'd love to hear it. Um, yeah, great podcast. Keep it rolling, guys. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. I've seen Kick-Ass once. Listen, Kick-Ass and Matchstick Men are the two that I'm very upset were not in the poll because those are like two of my favorite Nick Cage performances. Because I forgot about them. <laughs> Lindsay, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've only seen Kick-Ass a couple of times, so I can't all fully remember everything about that character. But I see totally what he's saying about the divorced from reality thing. And I guess in a way, it's kind of like the Vampire's Kiss character, but in a more, I don't know, do I want to say he's more sane? I think hmm. he's just very single-minded in Kick-Ass. Well, there's more of a rational reason, right? Like in Vampire's Kiss, you're like, does he go crazy because of what? Like, what is it that triggers him? You know, his own psychoanalytic... Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, some sort of psychoanalytic thing. Whereas in this, you're like, no, his partner was fucking murdered. No, and then then in in Kick-Ass, what is it? His partner is murdered? Is that what it is? I can't remember. I know he's the the dad of uh, Chloe Moretz's character, right? Yeah, and they're going to... Because the whole thing is revenge. It's a... He he wants revenge because somebody was killed. Like, was it her mom... Or, oh, I, yeah, I think it was her mom. That's right. It was her mom. That's right. So it's his his his, his wife, his partner, his, his lover is taken away. So there's like a rational, like it's retribution. Whereas Vampire's Kiss, there's, it's it's not at the surface level. It's underneath the surface. All right. We're going to do one more about adaptation. This one's from Aaron. Hey, Wisecrack. How you doing? This is Aaron here. Um, just got done listening to Adaptation Podcast and wanted to share my thoughts on just the ending, that third act that just... Uh, really takes a left turn and gets crazy. Uh, what I think is going on is that that is Donald's contribution to the story. Because, uh, you know, it says on there, written by Andy and Donald Kaufman. Well, you see things start to get crazy whenever uh, Andy says, well, what would the great Donald do? That's when everything goes nuts. That's So the ending, all the cliches, all of the uh, deus ex machina, and, uh, you know, the drugs and the romance and the life lessons, all of that comes in whenever Donald takes over. So really, uh, Andy actually failed. You know, he just wanted to make a story about flowers, and he couldn't. He could not do it. He had to submit to the Hollywood cliche. He had to submit to what audiences want, and, you know, then we get the movie uh, that we have. And that's why, you know, one of you mentioned that the story does, you know, the actual Andy Kaufman stories actually get more and more indulgent, it's because the actual uh, Andy didn't learn anything. He just had to submit to uh, the pressures of Hollywood, which I know in real life, um, Robert McKee, actually, he helped him with the third act. He said that he would only allow uh, him to be in the story if they could make the third act better. Uh, so, yeah, just some of my thoughts, and you guys have yourself a good one. Oh, that's good to know. I did not know that Robert McKee really did help out Charlie Kaufman. That's awesome. I, I do love how he said Andy Kaufman because I feel like there's an amazing yeah. sort of like <laughs> – there's like a Freudian slip in there maybe that could be kind of a fantastic way to bring this together. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that either it was Donald or Donald and Charlie after Charlie had seen the light that McKee provided. Definitely one of those makes total sense. All right. 
Uh, moving on to the email mailbag, I'll just do one since we're running a little late. This one is from Christian. I just want to remind everybody you can reach us at movies at wisecrack.co. So this is from Christian. As you were dissecting Instagram millennial culture and how fake it is, it made me think about multi-level marketing schemes and the culture they create and spread, which is incredibly harmful. Many of these firms showcase success only that can be achieved by those at the top, and people desperately try to emulate these often exaggerated and outright false images in order to recruit others. It's all about recruiting the MLMs, and in order to recruit, people need to appear successful. For example, showing off a brand new BMW, but not stating that it's a very costly lease, wearing suits or professional clothes just for taking pictures, but acting like you are the true traditional business person slash entrepreneur. From your discussion, this hustle porn and influencer culture sound like the culture of MLMs brought to life on a more broad scale. Instead of recruiting others under the lie of selling a product, it's just recruiting followers to sell an exaggerated image of oneself. People buy in and try to sell themselves the same way, but more than likely are not going to reach the same success as top influencers. I also think a Marxist reading of hustle porn would probably be the harshest and probably the saddest one. Millennials are forced to work long hours for less pay while in more debt than their parents. This hustle culture is either born out of the bootstraps mentality inherited from boomers without realization that the boots are beat up and full of holes, and or late stage capitalism creates this mentality in order to have an ever busy and exhausted workforce that can be exploited more than before, but that workforce thanks, thanks its exploiter for its exhaustion and asks... For another shift. Anyway, keep on bringing happiness and enlightenment to millennials such as myself from Christian. Well, thank you, Christian. Um, that yeah. was really well written. Well, I, 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 I love I, that I th bit at the end. Instead of like Oliver saying, you know, may I please have some more or whatever. It's your, can I please have another shift? You know? Thank you, sir. May I work again? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to contrast this to the uh, voicemail that we got from James, you know, because I think that it's a delicate balance that we have to have to strike is that, yes, these multi-level multi-level marketing schemes do sell us on a dream that is very hard, very, very hard to achieve and certainly harder for some than others. But should we go out and just claim it that it's impossible? Because certainly somebody is going to do, as was said, pull themselves up from their bootstraps and make it happen. And the dream is achievable for some, just not very many. What do you think, Austin? Yeah, I mean, again, I think this goes back to the question that James was talking about. For me, I, I think the questions that are the most important to ask ourselves is why are we desiring what we are desiring, right? Like, <sighs> capitalism is a response, um, people talk about the word neoliberalism. What does neoliberalism mean? I mean, one of the things that we can think about is that neoliberalism is a response to the crises of the 70s. And it's a way of trying to increase finance and these different mechanisms. You know, uh, the, the term neoliberal globalization is thrown around. What does that mean? Well, it means that the system was trying to adapt to these contractions that were taking place. And how did it do that? Well, it did that through the expansion of finance. Well, it post in post two thousand eight. There's a way that the system is trying to adapt to these certain contractions and these uncertainties and things like that that emerged from this global financial collapse where forty trillion dollars of wealth were wiped away in an instant and people were homeless and uh, in an, in an era that we had thought previously was this great moderation that we had gotten a hold of recessions now in the West, right? But we didn't. So what do we do now? Well, we increase data. So now we have the datafication of the economy. We have the increase of like sign value and cultural capital. That's what you get with like the increase of social media and all this stuff. And so 
I, I think what ends up happening is we need to think about what is it that's kind of driving these these uh, cultural phenomena and how is it that we can better respond so that we're not getting too caught up in the things that are going to make us unhappy. And then we have to think about, well, why is it that makes us unhappy? Maybe it makes us unhappy because we're just chasing after – I think I, I mentioned it and Greg liked it, but this idea of this endlessly receding goalpost of desire. If we're chasing after this object that we're never going to grasp and the harder we grasp it, the further away it gets because of the intensity of our individual and collective grasp. It's almost like negative polarities. The, the more uh, magnetism there is, the further away it gets pushed. If that's what's driving us, then we need to really think about, well, what is it that's causing those desires and how can we then do better? How can we make a society where we are satisfied, where people do have enough material comforts to have clean water and food and clothing and a modicum of happiness? And what does it mean to be happy? I mean those are the questions that we just don't typically ask. We just kind of go along with the flow. And as the great Howard Zinn says, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Culture is moving. We're on a fucking train and we're going somewhere. So either we're going along with it or we're contesting it and we're trying to create something better. And I would just opt for the latter. Well, I'm going to channel Ryan here because if Ryan were here, he would say, capitalism is awesome, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome, guys. Um, I want to thank our guest, Lindsay Gibb, for joining us, the author of National Treasure, the best book about Nicolas Cage ever written. Lindsay, is there anything that you want to plug, Twitter, other podcasts, anything? Uh, I do a Winona Ryder podcast called Winona Forever. It's on the uh, Cage Club Network, which is a network of podcasts that started with a Nicolas Cage podcast. (laughs) So you can go listen to that. They did all his movies, and I think they're redoing them now. So, yeah. All right. (laughs) So definitely go check out Lindsay's Winona Forever podcast. That's very, very interesting. All right. Where can we find you on the Internet? Amanda. Uh, you can tweet me at Amanda Shirker. And Austin. Yep, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Uh, I know I say this every time, but I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. Um, and I do another film podcast called I Dig This Movie. You can check those out. And I think that's pretty much it. That's me. Oh, and my Instagram. Uh, my Instagram is back and live. And after our last, I don't know, did you see what I did to my page, Jared? The Instagram page? Yes. Uh, I saw some posts, but I have not looked at it in its entirety. So I'm trying not to get sucked into the hustle porn, lifestyle porn, hustle culture thing, right? And I don't want to just turn myself into a meme. So I'm trying an experiment on Instagram where I'm going to start, like, telling stories through, like, these long, not, like, individual photos, but where I'm making, like, these big montage stories and, like, puzzles and things like that. So I started my first one, and it's just, like, a little bullshit thing about myself. But you can hit me up on Instagram. It's AUS underscore H-A-Y. So I'm trying. I'm, I'm experimenting on social media. That's all you have to do. Anyway, um, awesome. Uh, So thank you again, Lindsay. Um, Hope to let us know if you are writing another book. If the Winona Ryder book is coming, let us know. (laughs) And until then, that that does it for Nicolas Cage Month. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. There will be more Nicolas Cage movies to cover in the future. Um, But we're back to our regularly scheduled program next week when we cover something. So (laughs) signing off from Hollywood, California. See you guys. Peace. Laters. Later.